Good morning, Westside Family Church. It is great to see all of you here at Lenexa Speedway. Those of you watching online, a shout out to Jim and Judy Tomlinson, good friends of ours. Uh, let's give it up for Jim and Judy. This is their second time to join us online. Uh, so we're in a series. If you're new, uh, we're finishing it up today. You can go back and watch them, though, all in our archives. It's called How to Really Love Someone. And uh, over this series, uh, we've done some really cool uh, looks at the life of King David and his relationship with these five sort of fruits of the Spirit. A couple weeks ago, we did one on kindness. The way we love someone is to be kind to them. And at the end of the service, if you were here, uh, we invited you to come down as a family and to grab an envelope that had $40 in it. You were invited to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus and look for ways in which God would lead you to give this money, this resource to someone who needed to be encouraged and we invited you to send your stories in and boy you have been doing it you've been really working hard with this it's still uh, time for you to send some stories in we're going to put on the screen uh, where you text your story to or you can take a pic of this QR code and send your story in I'm going to read one of them to you of the many that have come in uh, it's uh, the, the person writes, I had pulled into the gas station to fill up when a van pulled in opposite of me. As I was standing at the pump, I heard him say, oh, no, oh, no. God impressed upon me that he had forgotten his wallet and that I should pay for the gas. He hesitantly looked around the pump and explained that he needed to get to Leavenworth but did not have his wallet. I told him I was going to pay for the gas and not to worry about it. After his tank was filling, uh, as his tank was filling, we had a nice conversation about what he did for a living, about his family, and why I was paying for his gas. And uh, who knows what the outcome of that story is going to be. Yeah. Uh, well, we're going to dive into our final installment uh, of this series. Are you ready? Okay. That was really huge. <laughs> working all week to give you something good and that's what you gave to me I'm a preaching better than you're responding are you ready then let's dive in with the story okay so there was once a boy who lived in the country and for for facilities they had to use an outhouse yeah uh, and this outhouse uh, was by the creek, uh, by their home. And the boy hated the outhouse because it was always hot in the summer, it was cold in the winter, and it stank all the time. And so this boy decided that one day, when the time was right, he was going to push that old outhouse into the creek. Yep, sure enough, the spring uh, came with the spring rains and the creek was swollen and the little boy decided that today was the day the outhouse was going into the creek. So he got himself a big stick and he pulled and he pulled and he pulled and finally the outhouse toppled into the creek and uh, went down the stream. Later that evening, uh, his father said to him, son, after supper, I want you to see me at the woodshed. Knowing that this meant a spanking, the little boy asked why. And the dad said, someone pushed the outhouse into the creek today. It was you, right, son? The boy said yes. But then he thought and responded to his father, Dad, today in school uh, I read that George Washington cut down a cherry tree, but he didn't get into trouble because he told the truth. The father responded, yes, son, but George Washington's dad wasn't in that cherry tree. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. While some of you have likely never been pushed over in an outhouse into the creek, we can relate to this story in at least three ways. Number one, all of us have, for whatever reason, this propensity to do wrong. The Bible calls it a sin nature, and you have one of them. And there's something in us that just tempts us to do what is wrong. Number two, our actions affect more than just us when we do wrong. It affects a lot of people around us. Maybe some of you have actually been pushed over in an outhouse, the proverbial outhouse, by a sinful person in your life, and you have been been affected by their decision. And thirdly, there's almost always consequences that come when we decide not to do the right thing, a whooping of sorts. And so today, as we finish up this series, we want to take a look at the word goodness, that God calls us to love people by being good to them. And uh, we, what we've been doing is we've been looking at the fruits of the Spirit. It's actually just the fruit of the Spirit, which the Apostle Paul says is love. And if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit empowers you to love the people in your life. And love is the number one virtue. And we talked about that. But then Paul gives eight descriptors of what love looks like practically in our relationships with each other. And one of those words is goodness. That if we really love somebody, we will be good to them. Now, what does that mean? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to do a deep dive into the word goodness from the language that Paul would have actually used when he wrote Galatians chapter 5, which is the Greek language. And uh, there are two words for goodness in the New Testament. The first word is kalos, K-A-L-O-S, and it refers to an outward beauty or an aesthetic. Whenever you see something on the outside uh, and you see it, your soul just says, that's good. Maybe when you wake up and see a sunrise and you look at it and you say, that's good. Or maybe you look at a beautiful piece of art. Like I remember when I was in the Sistine Chapel and looked up, my soul just said, that's good. Maybe for some of you, it's not beautiful pieces of art, but it's when Patrick Mahomes throws a beautiful spiral while he's on one foot with big guys chasing him down, and you go, wow, that's good. Or maybe for some of you, it's something much more simpler. You're looking at a plate of amazing Kansas City barbecue, and you say, that's good, yeah. Or you just close your eyes, and you envision yourself in the Caribbean. You're on a hammock. You're swinging. You hear the waves come in, and you whisper to yourself, that's good. That's what kalos means. It's, it's beauty on the outside. It's good. Now, I don't mean to be crude here, but I think it helps us to remember this. It is interesting, and I'm not messing with you. The word kalos is referring to goodness. The word for evil in the Greek, wait for it, is the word, I'm not lying to you, it's kaka. It really is. Kaka means evil. And it is such an appropriate word, isn't it, to refer because our world is just filled with kaka, right? And all I have to say about that is that kaka happens, man. (laughs) I couldn't help myself. 
Send your emails to somebody else. Uh. <laughs> Kalos, good, outward goodness, is not the word that Paul used in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. There is a second word he chose, he could choose from, and it is the word agathos. Agathos, which is where we get the name Agatha. Maybe you have a grandmother whose name is Agatha. No one's naming their kid Agatha today, but I promise you it's going to come back around again. Yes, it is. Agatha doesn't primarily refer to something of outward beauty, but rather Agathos refers to an inner moral sense of what is the right thing to do. It refers to an inner moral sense, uh, and it carries the idea of integrity. And what is going on morally inside of you drives you to do something on the outside that when it's said and done could be called good because it is right. So we're going to put up a working definition of biblical goodness. We're going to give you an opportunity to shout it out three times so by the end of the message it sinks into your soul. You have it clear in your head and you have the opportunity to practice it when you leave this place. That's what we're going for. Let's put it up on the screen and shout it out with me for the first time. Ready? I choose to do the right thing in my relationships with others. One more time. I choose to do the right thing in my relationships with others. Now, a person filled with Christ-like goodness is always digging down deep within themselves and asking the question, what is the right thing for me to do in this situation? What is the right thing for me to do in this relationship? Now, a great example of agathos or goodness is found in the life of a very popular, famous guy, character of the Old Testament by the name of David, whose life we have been looking at over these five weeks, and particularly today, how it worked itself out in a relationship he had with a married couple. Some of you know the story. Some of you know a little bit about the story. Maybe some of you know a lot about it, but it's worth retelling. Now, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12, or you can also open up the Westside app or download it, and there you will find all of the notes for today as, long, as well as all the scriptures that I will be reading from. Now, as uh, you're turning there, let me give you the setting for the story. Uh, David was anointed to be king of Israel when he was just 16 years old, and now 14 years later, David has been inaugurated as king. He's 30 years old, and you've heard this term if you're in business. For David, everything was up and to the right. Everything worked out for this guy. Number one, he became king. But take a look at this chart. In chapter 7, we see that he is at rest from all of his enemies. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18, David responds, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? And then we go to chapter 8, and we see that David is winning battles. Every battle he's entering into, he is victorious. In 2 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 5, the text reads, David reigned over all Israel, doing what is right and just for the people. David is an Agathos kind of king. In chapter 9, we see that David is fulfilling his promises that he made. 
For example, in chapter 9, his promise to watch over the household of Saul and David for anybody living when he became king. And he showed his kindness, remember, to a man who was crippled in both feet by the name of Mephibosheth. In chapter 10, we see David is out and he's winning even more battles. Everything is up and to the right until we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And now we have a pivot. As is often the case, is at times when we're doing our best and things are working out for us that we're most susceptible to a fall, that we let our guard down. Second Samuel is a huge pivot, a huge shift in the life of this man, David. Let me tell you the story. David's soldiers are all out to war fighting a battle that he sent them to fight. And he stayed back at his palace. Now, I was in Israel about a month ago with several of the people that were here, about 40 of us. And uh, they have excavated David's actual palace. And uh, I want to show you a picture. I was standing at the top of it. Take a look at the, the palace. I'm, I'm standing at David's palace. And there David is looking down on all the other houses. And one day, while all the men are out to war, David is looking out over his palace and he sees a beautiful woman bathing on the rooftop. She is Kalas. That's good, he said. That's good. The thing is, her name is Bathsheba and she is married to one of David's soldiers who's out at war. And David, with the power within him, called one of his men to go get Bathsheba and bring her to the palace. We don't need to get into all the details, but you know what happens. They have an affair. And Bathsheba, yeah, gets pregnant. You feeling it? So David decides to do what? He decides to dig himself deeper, which is what we often do when we make a mistake. He digs himself deeper. What does he do? He calls uh, his commander of the army to bring Uriah off of the battlefield for whatever reason, and it's going to give Uriah an opportunity to spend a night or two at home so that when the belly starts to show, he's going to think, and everyone's going to think, oh, that was nine months ago. That's when Uriah came off of the battlefield and spent the evening with his wife. But the plan backfires because Uriah is filled, as it turns out, with Agathos. And he refused to go be with his wife while all the other men were out on the battlefield. And that night, he slept on the front stoop of his house. He never went in. When David heard about this, and he was told, when David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. 
My master Joab and my lord's men are camped in open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as I live, I will not do such a thing. It's not the right thing to do. His response came from an intermoral sense of what was right. That, my friends, is Agathos. What does David decide to do? He decides to dig himself even deeper. Yeah. What does he do? He sends a letter to his commander-in-chief and sends Uriah back out onto the battlefield. And this is what the letter says. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 15 He says to his commander, he says, put Uriah on the front line where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So they're out in the midst of the battle where it's the fiercest. And at one uh, moment, uh, the commander says, pull away. And Uriah is standing out there all by himself. And exactly what David wanted to happen happens. Uriah dies. So the story unfolds. David decides to marry Bathsheba. And she's about to give birth to the child. And it looks like everything has been covered up nice and neatly and back to normal, right? It wasn't the right thing to do, but it appears that a king can get away with such a thing. Wrong! Because these things always come out. And because David is loved by God that much. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we discover that David has a special friend. Kind of friend that we all need. He approaches him. His name is Nathan. Nathan is a prophet who hears from God and who David trusted to lead him in the paths of God's way. And it's important to note that Nathan, his special friend, had earned the right to do what he is about to do. And that's very important. Asking yourself, have I earned the right to confront my good friend? And so David is about his business of being the king when Nathan interrupts him and has a few words to say to him. He's going to share an interesting story and then confront his good friend David. Watch this. Now, Nathan, tell me about this case. There are two men in a nearby city. One rich, the other poor. The rich man has many sheep, many cattle. The poor one has nothing except for one little ewe lamb he's raised up since birth like it was one of his own children. And yet, the rich man has taken up the poor man's one little ewe lamb to slaughter and sell as his own. Does anyone answer to this? The rich man must give the poor man one whole flock, and then he must die. What was the name of this rich man? I want to know so I can see to his punishment personally. You are a dead man.
do you mean? God has given you everything. Houses, wives, soldiers, and a great name among the nations. If you needed more from him, you had only to ask. Instead, you used the Ammonite sword to kill Uriah and took his wife. Now the sword will never depart from your house. And God has said, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. So let's put the definition on the screen for the second time and invite you to shout it out loud. Here we go. Ready? I choose to do the right thing in my relationships with others. Now I want to turn the tables to your story and ask you, which character are you? First of all, there's Uriah. Is that you? Uriah in this story is the guy who did the right thing in his relationships with the people in his life. He was full of integrity. And even though the king gave him permission, he decided it wasn't the right thing for him to do. And I find that to be pretty doggone inspiring. When others around you are telling you that it is okay to do something, when the culture is moving in this direction, makes it feel okay, something inside of you is stirring morally on the inside and saying, it is not the right thing to do. And even when the government gave him permission, the king gave him permission, he still realized that it wasn't the right thing to do. Even when our government, which is mostly good, tells us that we can do the wrong thing, we can't assume that they're right because we have a king who is higher than our government, and that is who we follow. Amen? Yeah. And so Uriah did the right thing, and we too must dig down deep and talk with God and ask, what is the right thing for me to do in this situation? It cost Uriah his life, but he died as a man of integrity. I would rather die with integrity than live without it. Maybe you're Uriah. Then there's Nathan. Nathan also did the right thing in his relationship with David. He confronted David with the problem, and he did so at great risk. Confronting a king doesn't always turn out right. It's risky business. But sometimes the best way to love somebody is to tell them the truth in love, as hard as it is. So I ask you, do you have someone in your life right now that really needs to be loved by telling them the truth? There's a proverb, Proverbs 27, 6, that reads, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Sometimes the right thing to do is to wound a friend with confrontation. It's like a shot from the doctor. The initial sting hurts, but the serum within the needle has the power to heal the disease. So I ask you the question, do you have any friends in your life that are willing to wound you in that way? Do you have a Nathan in your life? Do you have someone you need to be a Nathan to? Do you love them that much? 
Mm. Or maybe today, as uncomfortable as it might be, you're the David. And you have done the wrong thing. And just because we admit it, which is the place to start, and just because we come clean, it doesn't mean the wrong thing. It doesn't mean that the consequences will go away. Yeah, that's the truth. From 2 Samuel chapter 11, David's life never recovered. Everything went down because of the consequences of his actions. I offer you these observations. In chapter 12, we'll see on the screen, in chapter 12 we see that the baby in the womb of Bathsheba dies. We see in chapter 13 his daughter is raped. We see in chapter 15 his son Absalom rebels to take the throne from him. In chapter 18 we see that son dies. In chapter 20, there is another rebellion against David. Here is hard truth. Sometimes when we do wrong, we set unstoppable consequences in motion. We do. There were grave consequences for David's actions. So what's he going to do this time? Instead of digging himself deeper, David decides it's time to do the right thing. It's time to do the right thing and to restore my relationships, most importantly with God. And so I want to recommend to you who find yourself in this place today a recovery strategy from the life of David. And this is what sets David apart from his predecessor, Saul. Saul also did the wrong thing. A lot of caca. But the difference between David and Saul is that when Saul was confronted by the prophet Samuel, who had earned the right to tell him the truth, instead of coming clean, Saul rationalized it. And God disqualified him. But when David was confronted by his good friend, the prophet Nathan, David came clean. Principle number one, when David was confronted, he admitted it and made it right. Some of you are new to the Bible and probably don't know this. The Bible is just one story, but it's not organized as a story. The first uh, books of the Bible, um, 17 books, are historical books. The next five books are poetical books. And the last 17 books are prophetical books. So uh, you don't always get the full story. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, when David is confronted, and it's reported in the historical book, you got to run all the way over to the, prophetic, uh, to the poetical book called Psalms. And in Psalm 51, David wrote out his confession to the Lord. You might want to check it out later today, particularly if you find yourself in this place. It's where he says the famous words, Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. David came clean, and God restored him. Secondly, David lived with the consequences, with dignity. Nathan told him, it's never going to be up in the right 
for you ever again for the rest of your life. It's the consequences of your actions. And David took it on the chin with dignity. He never got bitter. He never lived in shame, but rather, and he never took on the victim complex, but rather he entered into it with dignity. And here's what David did. Recovery strategy number three, David maintained his commitment to walk with God. He maintained his commitment to walk with God. As we come to the end of David's life in the book of 2 Samuel 22 and 23, what do we find David doing? In 22, 23, at the end of his life, we find David is singing praises to God. Even though his life has gone downward every single day, he's singing praises to God. He's lifting his hands to the sky. And if you look at the words of the song, he's declaring that God has been good to me. And he's declaring that I have no other worthy path than the path of following God. Fourth, this one's on God. God was gracious to David that even though he had no more victories in his life, as he came to the end of his life, God made a decision to be gracious to David. David and Bathsheba did get married. And David had multiple wives. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> Who's going to be the next king after David dies? David and Bathsheba have a son, and his name is Solomon. And God selected graciously the son of Bathsheba to be the next king of Israel. And who does David call to anoint Solomon as the next king while David, while old but still alive? Who does he call to anoint his son Solomon from the womb of Bathsheba? You guessed it. He called his good friend who wounded him, Nathan, to anoint his son Solomon. To this day, even with 2 Samuel chapter 11 on the resume of David. He is known as a man after God's own heart. And the same thing can be true of us when we experience our 2 Samuel chapter 11 mistake. God was gracious to David, and he will be gracious also to us if we come clean with him. So I'm going to ask you to stand right now here at Lenexa Speedway, even if you're watching online. And as we set up our time of worship, the songs we're going to sing, I'm going to ask you, what about you? Where are you at right now? And enter into this worship with the character you are currently playing. Maybe God is calling you as a Uriah today. God is calling you to do the right thing, even though the stakes are high. I see all of our young people here today, and I know you would agree with this. If, if I could do anything, I would tell you, avoid adding 2 Samuel chapter 11 to your resume. Yeah? I met Roseanne when I was 15 years old. She, she's Kalos, man. And she said yes to me and got married when I was 20. 
and we're married now over 40 years. And I tell you the truth, every morning in my devotion, I ask God to help me finish strong with her. To not disrespect her. To finish my vow. And I have a vision that when I come to the end of my life, I'm laid out. My wife and my four children, my grandchildren are there. That a part of the eulogy will be, oh, our dad didn't really accomplish much. (laughs) But the thing he did, he was faithful to our mother. I pray that not because I'm strong. I pray that because I'm weak. And I want that for you guys. Remember that I said this to you. Maybe God's calling you to be a Nathan. You need to have a difficult conversation with somebody. It will feel like a wound at first to them. They might even hate you for it. But proving to be a good friend requires that you speak the truth to them in love. So I ask you, is there someone in your life that you need to speak the truth to? Are you willing to take that risk, trusting at the end of the day, he or she will call you back up again because you proved to be a good friend? Or maybe you're David today and you've done something wrong. It's time to come clean. Follow the path of David, not the path of Saul, and God will be gracious to you. Let's put it on the screen for the third and final time. Let's say it out loud together. Here we go. Maybe you don't need it. That's why they're not putting it on the screen. There it is, right? I choose to do the right thing in my relationships with others. God, now as we enter into this time of worship, we ask that you would speak to us the truth and allow us to be courageous and do the right thing in Jesus name.